0: Hi, and welcome to Decoding AQ, helping you to learn the tools, mindsets and actions to thrive in an ever-changing world. Hi, and welcome to the next episode of Decoding AQ. With me today, I've got Jeff Smith. He comes from Vancouver in Canada. Um, As a few of you might know, my brother's lived in Canada for many years who listened to the podcast, so I have an affinity to Canada and Canadians. So Jeff is a certified executive coach, he's a chartered professional accountant, also certified in, in yoga and a yoga instructor, but is the founder and CEO of Supporting Lines Institute. So welcome, Jeff.
1: Thank you. Great to be here.
0: So I'm going to start off and just ask how did you go and transition from a kind of a career that was heavy into sales uh, into then coaching and executive coaching? Tell us a little bit about that adaptation and that journey, Jeff.
1: Yeah, adaptability was definitely part of this. I think for me, it's, it's, it's something where I, I have no idea is the short answer. And I, I totally understand. It's both. And so, you know, I know one of the things you ask about is contradiction. And so this is a contradiction. Um, You know, I think the first thing was in my career, I definitely was focused on things that would challenge me. So any role I took, I was less focused on what the job was. I was more like, literally, like, will I not know how to do like 40% of it? So that was was part of my criteria. Like, will this just turbocharge um, my growth? Because one of the things I'm most interested in is is just having new opportunities and really trying to do new things. And so I did that. Um, so in some ways, while it looks like you know my journey was through finance and into operations and into sales, and then I actually went back to finance because I was a sales guy at SAP, sales manager. And then um, after they acquired business objects, so much had changed in terms of the work that I was doing. I was working in a a software as a service group inside business objects that was essentially competing with on-premise software. So again, you talk about contradiction. We literally were deliberately creating channel conflict so we could see what possible disruptions would look like from the SaaS community when when they would be selling against our on-premise software. When SAP bought it, everything changed. And all of a sudden the stuff that we were doing was merged with some other things that were on a a longer timeline. And so I had to find a new role. So I was able to stay within the company, but I had to find a new role. And at the same time, someone else called me with a new role that was outside the company, but I was going from sales back into finance. And I was going to the helicopter space and head up a financial planning group. But I would say those roles actually weren't that different. Because in one of them, I was trying to sell a new concept into a customer base in the software space. But in the other one, we were doing, my team in at CAC Helicopters was really focused on selling a new concept about the way that with a new private equity owner, We would be focused on trying to do a new way of of working together globally to do financial planning, to do coordination on bids. So it was a combination of finding the right balance between, you know, overall kind of control of a process to make sure that we were doing things in a way that it was like consistent and disciplined and all those things, while also recognizing that, yeah, sure, like eventually I became the head of commercial for CHC, but it would be ridiculous to say that you know, all of the deals that were closed were done centrally by the commercial team. And we worked very closely with the regions. And in many cases, their relationships were the ones that got the deals on. So, you know, in some ways, they were incredibly different roles in incredibly different industries. But both of them, like I thought software moved fast. And then I went to helicopters. And that was even faster, which surprised me because I thought of it as like a more traditional industry. But when you're supporting oil and gas companies that are going around the world, Trying to run these, you know, huge complex drilling programs and other things, the level of adaptability we had to have was even stronger than what we had in software. So I was kind of surprised by that. I think a lot of times people have stories about industries and things, but you know, for me, it was just those roles were super different. So yeah, I, I achieved my goal of you know, like sitting in meetings when people were talking about like helicopter models and stuff. And I'm like, I have not, I don't have a clue what's happening in this meeting. Um, but at the same time, it was like there was a consistency. So we were selling a new concept we were having to be adaptable. We were trying to do new things. And a lot of the things that, you know, would go into selling software as a service is not that different to selling what was essentially helicopters as a service offshore because we were providing a service. They paid us a monthly. We brought people out, returned them home and then off they went. And so they were essentially, it was like helicopters as a service. So I don't know, we think about these things as being incredibly different and and I don't know that they are. I mean, the last mile for me was probably, um, I, I had... Um, I'll say the opportunity, though it didn't feel like one at a time, to work for, you know, a few leaders that were not great. I also worked with some great leaders, so you learn from them. I think you learn even faster and more profoundly from managers who are not great and leaders who are not great. Um, They don't live your values. They don't have your best interests at heart, and they probably even treat you in a way that is, uh, well, let's say, not so good. You know, and so I think for me, it really... um, Having one of those experiences really helped me understand that when I thought I was a great leader my whole career, I actually was a really good manager. I was good at getting, good at helping people get stuff done, but I don't know that I was as truly showing them the genuine interest I had in them as opposed to just, you know, I think most leaders have genuine interest in their people, but even the leaders that were treating people poorly, I do believe they had a genuine interest in the people, they just didn't show it. It certainly didn't show up in their actions. And so You know, a lot of that really changed for me, um, my perspective. And when I went into Mobify, I had a very different perspective on um, really on life. And that was right around then I was going through, I would call it the healthiest midlife crisis ever. And so I think the fusion of everything I had done, including the yoga, um, you know, the, the, the yoga piece of things, when we created our assessment and we really looked at what makes a great culture, it's the fusion of the things that as a manager, you do to get people performing. Right? So, when John, John Kevin's in talks about humans doing human doings, right? So, getting humans doing things is really important, getting people on the same page and achieving. But we also need to think about the human being. And I think all of everything we try to do, it's like we started out our journey with how do we make sure that we're achieving while living values? And it turns out that is actually the magic formula. And so, the, 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 the jumping off point, I guess, for Mobify, um, which was an amazing place to work and a great opportunity for me into what I'm doing now is really, I don't know, people talk about, you know, they have to find their purpose. I think if your purpose finds you, you're screwed. Like there's no going back. It's like, you, you just, you have no choice but to go do it. And so uh, the CEO of Mobify, a uh, wonderful leader named uh, Igor Fuletsky, he, he was, yeah, it just became clear at some point that what was essentially a side hustle for me was becoming the hustle. And so then it was just like, yeah, we're there. So yeah, I both have no idea. If you told me ten years ago I'd be a coach and a yoga instructor and everything else, I would have thought you were nuts. Um, and I totally know how it happened because it all makes sense.
0: It's interesting. I've said a few times, and it's a um, Steve Jobs quote in the fact that we can only connect the dots backwards. Right. And so you know, we we can connect them and understand and put the rational thought around ah, they're not that different or this links here. But if we try to project out forwards. We wouldn't have projected or foreseen the types of things, the types of roles and types and events. And there in itself comes a bit of a quandary, doesn't it, Jeff? And the the name, even supporting lines instead of reporting lines, I thought was just really profound. And when it comes to some of your framework in terms of helping people grow and achieve more goals, how important was the goal setting for you, but the openness to opportunity, i.e., I just want to learn really fast and 40% what I want to be scared by versus, right. no, I have this goal. I want this role, or I want to work in this industry. How do you balance those sorts of uh, types of styles in some of your coaching work?
1: That's an incredible question. Um, I really like the way you phrase it. And, and some, some aspects of that actually are almost like, like it's it's causing me to have insights about our own stuff. So it be a great question. Um, I think for me, the key, when I, when I work with, co- when I'm coaching people, this is a common thing, right? The only, we talk about VUCA, right? Volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity. Like these, these things are constants. They are the only constant that, so you need to have a plan. I think if you don't have a plan, you're like a rudderless ship. The key is you need to be able to steer the boat in a different direction. And sometimes you might be able to pivot and it's like a small speed boat, right? You just turn the wheel slightly and it, you can go. And other times, in a large organization where you're trying to lead a transformation effort, that could be like trying to turn like a cargo ship, right? And so it it takes the, the, the sort of path of the arc is going to be much, much wider. But the key is have a plan, because if you don't, that would be ridiculous. But understand that the key to any plan in an organization is the part that people don't do. Like almost always, I, I, I think it was in um uh, the balanced scorecard. Uh, yeah, it was in the balance scorecard. They talked about how there was no, um, it was like 90% of strategic plans were not achieved, right? 90%. And I would say it's the same thing in my experience for actual plans. And the reason is that we didn't create a plan. It's not a plan. It's a set of outcomes that we hope to hit in the future without a plan. And the plan piece is if we're working together and we have a shared objective, we could be in the same organization or we could be partners or whatever. We need to define the most important things that will be different or need to happen to make sure we achieve the plan. That's what we call the supporting line. So in an organization, first of all, they're not even defined. You might call them dependencies. There could be a dotted line relationship or something, which is usually that there's a clue that there's something here. But I think it's even more profound than that. The supporting line is a commitment to, to between two people to action, and it's in support of the most important goals. And in an organization, I would say rarely, if ever, I've challenged this every time I've seen it. When you think about the biggest goals of an organization, the most important ones that the whole organization wants to achieve they are cross-functional almost every time it's pretty rare and i'd say i'd actually go to never I'd, I'd say i got one foot on never maybe i could be convinced wrong but if a department thinks that they have something that is solely achieved within their department and it's an organizational goal i'd say at a minimum they need help from somebody else and they haven't thought about it and and, and on a bigger scale that probably is a departmental goal not an organizational goal so when you think about How you set goals yourself, how you set goals for a whole organization or team, it really comes down to making sure you have some sort of, I think three years is long enough, like beyond that, I mean, go back three years and try to figure out if you could have predicted everything that happened since then, right? Like no chance. And so when you think about these critical things that you need to happen for your own goals or the organization needs to happen for its goals, those are the supporting lines. And those are the hardest ones to manage because people often don't even think they're on they don't, they don't see it as a team. They don't they just say, well, I got to help that group off the side of my desk. And it's like, no, no, this is the work. And the other, so the, the supporting lines between teams is really important. And the other thing is like managers often think of people reporting to them. And in fact, they need to flip that and see how they can support them. So it goes right back to the very definition of servant leadership, but in like a way you can operationalize it. And one of the biggest things you can do to support your team, it's the same thing. They ask people, To kind of create this three-year plan, it doesn't have to be this massive twenty-five-page document. Just where would you like to be in three years? What would you like to be capable of? What strengths do you have now that would help you get there? Right? What are the things that, in your current role, you could gain experience on to move you closer to that vision? That's what create like people create their own meaning. You don't create meaning for people; they need to do it. But as a leader, you can certainly take them on a journey to get them to think about it. Yeah. I, I so I think it's critical to have a plan, and know that your plan is probably. (laughs) Wrong. <laughs> you don't
0: know what's going to happen. So in that sort of paradox of we need a plan, but knowing that the plan is going to change continually. Yeah. And you mentioned kind of a, a three year plan. How detailed should you get at what let's get super practical for people right now? Mm-hmm. because. The, the challenges of, yes, we're living in this VUCA world where things are changing on an hourly basis in our lives, in our tech, in our industries, in whatever. We're going And there are other things that will still be the same and consistent in 50 years' time. And knowing and predicting which those are are going to be the, the, the challenge. And it might be, I still want to be have a sense of belonging. I still want to be loved. I still want to learn and contribute. There might be some consistency. But how that shows up, can really change because of, well, I didn't even know that existed, but that looks exciting now. So I become aware of something or I test it out and go, oh, well, that was a bad experience. I don't want to repeat it. Or when I repeat it, I'll be different. I'll have new eyes or new capabilities. So when you come to this challenge of you're mapping things out, you're mapping these supporting lines and you've, you've got your plan. What do you do when that changes, when something's different how, how do you know what to stick with or what to let go of or what to adapt in your experience? Is there a magic framework? Is there a formula? Is there I, I some way there of is. thinking about it? Yeah.
1: That? It's like there's, there's a method of planning called uh, OKRs. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. So it's objectives and key results. And key results. And yeah, It is wonderfully powerful until you try to cascade it because it doesn't cascade. You can't cascade goals. I think that's step one. So if, if you, Cascade goals down through the whole organization. You're basically deciding what's important to people and how they should do their work. And so, at some point, it breaks. And anybody I ever know in a large organization that's tried to do OKRs has run into this. And so, we believe there's three elements to a complete goal. So I'll do the I'll do the short version of this because there's like a four hour workshop I could do, but I'll save that. Objective is what are we trying to accomplish? The key results are the proof that we achieve that, and then the supporting lines are the most critical things we need to do make sure happen or do differently to achieve the goal. So one of the most foundational things there is we're not talking about everyone's run rate stuff that they need to do every day. Right? Like I like the example of like, you know, if a finance team uh, takes a step back and looks at how much of their job in accounting or something is, is really run rate, it could be 85 or 90% is literally just closing the books. So they may not show up as one of the most strategic goals, unless you had like some sort of, regulatory violation or something, in which case now that just became strategic. So in most cases, what we're focused on here is the most important things across the organization that need to happen. So the objective usually doesn't change. We're trying to grow the business. We're trying to like expand our product offerings or whatever it is, right? Get into new markets. That usually hasn't changed. So the first thing you do when a moment of VUCA happens, right? Something's volatile, something changes, something's a threat. you need to assess does it impact the objective? And usually it doesn't. Does it affect the key results? Usually it doesn't. Usually the proof of what we want to, you know, whether or not we achieve the objective, doesn't change. The key, though, is it might change the supporting ones. The, the cool thing is that those are super nimble. It's just an agreement between you and I to do something. All we need to do is assess do we need to reset the agreement? And then the second part, and this is critical, is from adaptability. Think about this one. It's like, okay, who around our organization is working on this thing that we just changed? And would probably want to know that we just changed it. And that's kind of it. And so it gives you a nimbleness and a focus and the ability to kind of pivot and be adaptable because you've defined the work. If you haven't defined the work, you don't even have a clue who's working on this stuff. But the key thing for us is that goals don't cascade. And this will save, if, if anyone listening is involved in goal setting, I'm about to save you like a million hours of your time. Objective, key result, supporting lines at the company level. What are we trying to do? How would we know we did it? What worked? What are the most important things we need to do around the organization, maybe outside the organization with the partners, whatever it is, to have it happen? And then you draw a hard line. That's the plan. You're done. The next thing is in our model, we look at a method of goal setting, which actually really is more about peer support and what people need to do for themselves, than leaders need to go communicate the plan. What we do is we go out in every department, every person in the organization will look at that plan and then they figure out what are the most important things they're doing to support that. You don't cascade down. So it's like, there is a top-down exercise until you get to the point where you have this global set of supporting lines that are supporting the plan, but then everybody else, they connect their work up. So it saves you a ton of time. And the chances of, you know, someone deep within the organization, you know, if they sit down with their manager and come up with the most important things that they need to do, the chances of them getting that wrong in a way that profoundly threatens the entire plan, like that's not really that big a risk but the cool thing is that if you actually capture all this and connect it all you now have your communication plan so it's like look hey anybody who's touching this overall thing around this product launch or this new website or new location or new country or whatever it is if you're working on this we just changed it and we're going to have a session where we're going to talk about it please come or watch this video or whatever but it just it flips it the other way so it's because it, when you look at reporting lines not only are reporting lines not usually like one department's reporting lines are not usually the sole thing that creates, you know, an organizational goal. They often get in the way. They're actually like, we need to embrace the fact, like Steve jobs also talked about the fact that people are on multiple teams. And so the other thing that the supporting lines framework does is it gives you, it embraces that it embraces the fact that people are on multiple teams. And some of them are just around an initiative that could be for four months and then the team's done.
0: I find a couple of bits I want to drill down into, Jeff, to get get some more uh, clarity on. So I love this idea. I mean, one of the things I quite liked about OKRs, we tried to implement it years ago in our agency, and one of the things was the transparency that everyone can see everyone's objective and key result. I like that. I think that brought a lot of uh, sense of awareness sense of ah, how might I be able to contribute to something that I wasn't aware of, but I can see it and I can now show up because they didn't even know I was capable of this or right. I wanted to be involved. So those things are, are really valuable and really helpful. And then this ultimate level of flex and flexibility in how we might achieve it in the supporting lines in what we're doing. Yeah. I think one of the challenges we've observed is how many people are wrapped up in how they're doing something being who they are. And right. how I am this person, I have these responsibilities and the responsibilities are actually the how, how I do stuff, not the objective or the result. And right. we we miss The clarity of no, no, it's the objective and key result that defines you, not necessarily how you do it. And I think that's a key transition shift that, oh, I'm busy, I'm doing, I'm contributing in all of those things. And I hold on to the house, the supporting line elements rather than being able to flex around them. So in terms of then I'm intrigued because I've gone through phases of yoga in my own life where I've done it daily for months on end, to at the moment, I'm out of sync with yoga. So I broke my elbow um, about nine months ago. And so I've got very little mobility Mm -hmm. in my left elbow. I'm waiting for another surgery. And I've used that as an excuse to stop doing something that I know is so additive to my life, mentally, physically, in work. So I'm intrigued to just flip it a little bit in terms of how do you integrate some of your yoga for leaders to perform well to help them in their thinking about their supporting lines and how does that uh, shift in Jeff? I'm just fascinated because it might inspire me to get back into my yoga, which I desperately need.
1: Yeah, no, it's an awesome question. I think there's there's sort of two pieces to that. The first one is that if you think about like so you would be familiar with the term the eight limbs of yoga, right? And so there's there's all these different sort of levels of yoga. The, one, the ones that people think about the most are like the third and the fourth limb, which is around like pranayama or breathing, or the asana, which is like the stretchy pants and the mats, and which with your elbow would make a difference. I'm sorry to hear that you've got that. The first two, though, are actually things that you're doing on a daily basis. And this is something my teacher said to me, because it's all about principles and beliefs and values. So on a daily basis, you are actually practicing yoga because of the work that you're doing. So yoga is not just the stretchy pants and whatever. We like that. And I enjoy asana practice as well. And right now, I also uh, am probably not doing it as much as I would like to. However, when I said that to my teacher, he was like, right. But what you're doing is you're infusing these principles and this concept and this way of life into everything that you're doing and helping other people do it. So he said, in fact, you are actually practicing yoga like almost every minute. Um, I do find for me that. There are wonderful techniques like in my coaching, for example, one of the biggest things, one of the most common ways I use yoga is to get people to um, activate their parasympathetic nervous system to maintain composure. So when we do training, we talk about the eight core things. There's, we've isolated, like these are eight things. And if you get these right, everything else in leadership is likely to be happening to a moderate or great extent as well. But of those eight things, these are techniques you can easily train on, easily learn, if you are in a state of reactivity, which we all, I have them daily. I, I am by no means uh, free of this. There's not enough yoga in the world. I would say to, to deal with some of the things that bother me, Um, but you do need to maintain composure. And so one of the simplest things I get people to do is when you're feeling that energy, start to reflect on where it might be coming from and then just sit in it, like experience it and then start breathing in and out of your nose. You can do it in a meeting, right? You don't have to sit there and, you know, some sort of yoga pose or whatever, Um, you know, full lotus with your eyes closed and start burning some incense. So you can just start breathing. So you just start breathing in and out of your nose, even in, even out. After like 10 breaths, you will start to activate your parasympathetic nervous system and reduce the anxiety, which is going to give you a better chance of acting in a composed manner. One of the eight things that we recommend is using a coach approach. So if you're pissed off, try the 10 breaths. You can do it in a meeting especially on Zoom, right, it's even easier. And then your first, the first thing you say after that should be a question that starts with what or how. And you're gonna have a much better chance of not coming at the situation from a reactive place. Won't be perfect. And you might sometimes also, we just tell people literally say to someone, you know what, I'm not in the right conditions anymore to be able to have this conversation. So I'd like to actually continue it later. Again, it's it's better to do that than to act from a place of reactivity. And we've all had moments where we lose our composure. I've had plenty, but that, that is probably the closest, like the purest form in terms of how I weave actual yoga practice into daily life. I used to teach yoga on a regular basis when I was at Mobile Five, which was kind of cool, I ran yoga classes and whatever. People found those great. But in terms of my coaching, that's something I do now. But I, I would, yeah, I would challenge the notion that you're not practicing yoga. I would just have you think about some of the other limbs until your, yeah. your limb is feeling better.
0: <laughs> I, I really appreciate that response, Jeff. And it's given me, just in my own sense, um, brought composure and balance to my thinking of, oh, I'm anxious about not doing that to actually uh, be in a better state. And I, I think Amazing. that is a real gift, isn't it? How we can, as humans help people think differently. And that is just so powerful to allow them to consider something new, to build that into their thought process, into their mindsets and their future considerations. So if if we can inspire more leaders to understand how to leverage composure, that can be the difference between, well, it's huge. It's absolutely huge because it's not only for self, it's for all of those others that we can help improve their performance, their engagement, their experience of work. And so this ripple effect of how we affect ourselves, teams, companies, industries to transition through this challenge, maintaining composure when we're up against it is, is tough. I, one last It's really hard. Point. It is hard. And I, I think it's where we define our experience of great things uh, is when it's choppy water, when it's yes. difficult. And if we can maintain this sense of composure, we gravitate to people who can do that. But sometimes what we've also experienced is a frustration for others are observing someone in who's composed when they're not, when they feel they shouldn't be. And right. we project this sense of, oh, they're disconnected or they perhaps don't care. And so how do we um, ensure that as a leader who might be composed in a situation where everybody around us thinks we shouldn't be, To not have them maybe have a bias or a thought around, ah, maybe you don't care because I've observed that, that somebody is a great leader, really composed all the time. And others who aren't able to observe or see that often see them as maybe aloof or, um, you know, perhaps aren't as caring. What are some of the ways in which we might be able to. Um, if even if you've seen that, I don't know whether you have, but how we might be able to shift that thinking and engagement if if we observe it in others?
1: So I have about 48 answers to that, but I'll pick my favorite one because um, there's so much there. There's so much there, right? It, it kind of, I think in some ways, I bet you kind of went right to the heart of what leadership really is. And uh, Brene Brown has this really cool quote about vulnerability. I think that's the single word. If I had one word answer, it's vulnerability. And but there's more to it. So she has this quote about how vulnerability is something that I would probably see as a strength in you and a weakness in me. And I've literally had people when I'm running sessions about our one-on-ones that we use. Uh, we have an approach to one-on-ones that I think is really profound, and we've done a ton of research around it. And it, 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 it's directly on point in this. So when we ask leaders if they do good one-on-ones, we get research that's similar to what other people see, which is that more than 90% of leaders say they do effective one-on-ones but fewer than 10% of employees say they get effective one-on-ones and they're both right. You want to talk about contradiction? This is the biggest one in leadership. This is number one, biggest blind spot in leadership. Biggest misperception is that on one hand, you've got leaders think they're doing something great. And on the other hand, you got employees saying they're not. But the problem is they're talking about two different types of meetings. Most leaders are doing tactical one-on-ones where it's like, you know, you know, know, hey Ross, let's talk about the work. Let's, let's make Sure, that's happening, whatever it kind of remove some blockers, and they think that's it. The other one is a development one-on-one. Where I'm looking at what are your development goals and what's your experience of work. Because if you're having a crappy experience, you're probably not going to develop. It's like the plant behind you. If we take that, put it in really terrible soil, not gonna not gonna work out so well. The key though is that not only are they different, they need to be separate. So I'll just do this exercise and I'll invite everyone that's 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 listening to this to do the same. So Think of a time where you were having a a meeting with one of your mentors or a leader that you worked with, manager, and it was just all about your development. And it just felt like they really were with you. They're really trying to help you grow. Okay. Got it. You're there. Okay. Now I'm going to apologize because I'm going to destroy it. (laughs) So now what I want you to do is shift from that, like feeling that to your to-do list. And specifically, I want you to find the thing that's sitting there, like a flashing thing that for three months you haven't done. And it's super annoying. Okay, I'm I'm sorry I took you from one to the other, but that's why they need to be separate. And for high performance, high performers will do that on their own because they're self-accountable. So the minute we shift from talking about their development goals and their experience, and this could be like one small thing you're working on, one capability. It doesn't have to be what's your 15 year roadmap, just something you're working on right now, something you'd like to be more capable of for having that conversation. And we're talking about your experience of work. What is your human experience? We stay there. That's a different thing. Literally, I can go back to that meeting again and I can take you back to the other one, right? Back to the to-do list. The problem is that high performers will immediately go to the thing they haven't done. I see it all the time. And it destroys, there's something here, there are next level of research. I'd like to dig into the neuroscience of this because there's something that completely shifts. And it's like a total buzzkill for that meeting. Like the minute you shifted over there, you've destroyed that sort of presence that you've created by showing someone that you truly care about them. And so in our one-on-ones, we talk about you know, it's, it's really simple. It's like, and there's a free template on our uh, Supporting Lens Cloud where people can download it. Maybe we can put a link in the, the chat or something when, when, we, when we put this out. But So we talk about what were your wins since the last time we spoke? One development goal. What's one thing you want to get better at right now? And the person can shift it. Just one thing. If you have to overachieve, you can take two or three, but something you're actually going to do. Not like someday I might and you never do it. Then we ask about well, what's challenging. And that could be whole life, right? Someone could be frustrated something happened in their personal life. You don't have to solve it. You're just showing them you actually care. Um, The next thing we ask about is what's your level of engagement right now? So on a scale of one to 10, what's your level of engagement? And then we shift to what feedback do you have for each other? So you have feedback for me. I have feedback for you. The reason I highlight this one is that through that whole conversation, we've done research that shows that that deepens the relationship between a manager and employee. There's a few specific moves. The first one, there's something about having all five of those. So they're all like important, but together, all five of them, they're like much importanter. I'll use that word. It's a word now.
0: They're a a multiplier.
1: They're a multiplier. And so the other thing is that the leader being open to feedback from the team is actually one of the most important things. And the reason I'll bring this right back to your question. One of the things that um, came up for me in a one-on-one recently was I got feedback from one of my employees that they could tell that I was stressed. I was having a lot of anxiety about something. And they were right. It was something I was worried about. And it had to do with a combination of some client delivery stuff and like didn't want to close deals, like all those things you're, you're worried about as a, as a business owner. But it, it, was, it was affecting the way I was showing up. And so they gave me that feedback. But if we'd never had that conversation, that's a great example of where I might have thought I was being super composed, but I wasn't. And the team let me know. So we had to create the conditions for that to be something they could share with me. But having these one-on-ones on on a regular basis, like we have that meeting every other week. And then in between, we do the tactical stuff. But because we had had that meeting a bunch of times, I got the right to that feedback. The first few times you do these kind of meetings, what I find is like, someone will be like, ah, yeah, no, like, let's hear my manager. It's like, "Mm, yeah, I don't think I have any feedback for you today. And then the second time is like, no. And then by the third time, I'm like, okay, come on, there's gotta be something I'm doing that's even mildly annoying. And then people will be like, oh yeah, I got a whole list of those. Where do you wanna start? And so you earn the right to opportunities to be vulnerable by having this conversation with people on a regular basis. And in almost every single company that we run our assessment with, when we assess culture, this is actually the biggest opportunity. This is the biggest opportunity to improve culture. And it's because you're having, it's, it's a structured conversation, but it's, it's less about what's in it, though that's important. It's more about what isn't, which is the tactics because they're completely different. And they you felt that shift. And so the, the key thing, I think, is just getting back to some level of just like human connection. But still like we're still talking about work and stuff like we're still trying to help someone grow, whatever. But I just think there's really big opportunities to do super common sense things. But we talk about common sense not being common practice. And so it's literally that simple. But I, I just think, you know, we don't ask the question in our survey, like, do you get effective one on ones? Because I, I, what we've noticed is that. There's probably like a 20% course correction to what actually a good one-on-one is. And I don't think people know what makes a good one-on-one. Like from what we can tell, we have the first primary research on one-on-ones. Like think of that. There's millions of these meetings happening all the time and we couldn't find any peer reviewed research on one-on-ones. So if you have any, please share it with me, but we couldn't find a thing.
0: It, I, it's not something we've looked into, but I love this idea of having space between when you're thinking about future self, when you're thinking about mm-hmm. the development, keep that in its isolated piece. And then when you're thinking about current or past, i.e., what, what are the tactical things, what haven't, what's challenging, what haven't you done, those kind of things. And, and giving this ability to hold space for both of those, but not in the same moment. <laughs> <You can't, laughs> and I think that's yeah. really quite fascinating as a structure that people can just practically embrace that and try it out. See, how does it feel? How does it work? You know, a lot of these best things and most simple things, we can check it out, see how it how it fits, how it feels when we try it. And knowing the same sense where you said it took, you know, two, maybe three goes before someone was willing to give any kind of uh, feedback that they might feel. Oh, I'm not sure I'm going to be judged here if I give this feedback to actually then showing them that they've got some psychological safety they've got some areas that they can now express uh, that for the sense of growth for the sense of future Um, what if it's something that you get feedback and you don't want to change it and you don't want to deal with it and you're not going to act on it because i guess one of the dangers when you ask for that and then they see you don't actually affect anything or ah oh, right. does that corrode it or do we need to when we embrace feedback be prepared to act on it or give the feedback as to why how might we deal with that and that can be in any context right if we ask for something we've got to be prepared to not only receive it but then what if it's not something we want to do or want to shift how do we deal with that kind of adaption challenge
1: yeah I think I think the answer is in the question right I think when you one of them in the in the in the so-called Great Resignation, which I I'm not sure to what extent that's actually a thing. There there is some reality to it, but there there's there's a whole other conversation we could have about that. One of the most profound things that people have said is our company has asked for my feedback and they didn't do anything about it. Like that's literally one of the biggest reasons that people are leaving, right? And 36% of people in the Great Resignation data have left. This is McKinsey's data. They left with nowhere to go. So they're literally like when I when people are talking about whether they want to leave. Their company, like I have this all the time in coaching, right? It comes up. I, I, one of the questions I always ask them is, are you moving to something or moving away from something? And and like I want you to split the hair. Like you have to pick one or the other. Even if it's like 60 40 But if you're, if you're going to ask someone for feedback, I'll quote another one of my yoga teachers um, on this one. If you're going to ask someone for their feedback and you're not going to do anything with it, it's like stealing. Like why even bother asking in the first place? It says it says. It says a lot about you if you're not actually even willing to take on the feedback it might be hard you don't have to agree with it but the other thing we do one of the other foundational of these eight foundational things another one is actually something called three-story feedback so it's also the way you give the feedback so step one is you look at the context of it so what is the thing that you're sort of annoyed with or would like to see the person work on and then you start bringing that back to things like organizational values and the impact And how did you feel? Emotions are really important, right? Like, how did you, how did it make you feel when you experienced this? But then we got to flip it and use the coach approach to say, all right, now this is my story about it. What is your story? What am I missing? What did I maybe contribute to this? What might I not be aware of? That's the part a lot of times people don't do. They like come by and they drop off the feedback and then they're gone. It's like, yeah, that thing you did last Tuesday. Terrible. See ya. It's like, that's like, if you get feedback, it's it's a drive by a little bit, right? (laughs) Yeah. And so what we focus on is um, there's a, a concept. Um, Marshall Goldsmith has this concept called feed forward. And I like that a lot better because f- you, you do, you can't just do feed forward because your feedback informs like what happened informs why you're frustrated. So you share that experience and your human experience of like what happened, but then you get their story and shift to, okay, what do we want to be different instead of arguing over whose story is right. doesn't matter. There is no truth. There is no fact. It's just each of us, now have mutual awareness of each other's perceptions. this sounds like Pollyanna kind of bullshit, but like it isn't, it's like, this is how this stuff happens. Like let's have the conversation. I'm gonna share what I believe to be true. And I'm that's a 100% accurate reflection of how I perceived it. So I would like you to honor that, but I would also like to hear your side of what am I not aware of, whatever. And that is a 100% accurate reflection of your perception and it could help shape mine. So now we're mutually aware and we look at what do we want to be different? That's the third story. So it's your story, like what's my story, then I get your story. And then it's what's a better story in the future so we don't we don't have to have this conversation again. And, and if you give feedback that way, not only is it more effective, we have this decision tree on our website, this is a free one too, where we literally have a decision tree that takes you through, how do I give feedback to my manager who doesn't want it? And ultimately, if it's really important, it's affecting the team, it's creating a poor culture, having a huge impact, there's nowhere else to go in the organization. Then you leave. That's the end of the decision tree, yeah. right? You leave because you you shouldn't work there. Like, why bother if you can't have a, if you don't have a leader that actually would take your feedback and do something about it? Go do something else.
0: I, I I like that, and I think the the opportunity is so much in the framing. You know, how are we framing that feedback is it for awareness? Is it going to affect a decision? You know, if it right. doesn't affect the decision. Uh, that's only possible if there was no feedback, if there is feedback, even if it doesn't change the outcome it's affected the decision because it's been made aware. And what, what I think the, what you talked about there was being able to have the conversation, that candid conversation, those difficult conversations and say, I heard you, but this is why we're doing it this way and sticking to this way and this way. And perhaps next time we'll try this way or we'll do these things. So I think it's, it's, important to know that you can say no, but you can yes. do it elegantly and we can do it with grace. And um, it's as important to say no as it is yes. Mm-hmm. So that, that feedback needs to be more persuasive. Needs to, What's missing is this. If you can go and find some of these bits in there, then that might help us shift our direction of how we're approaching that. So that's great, Jeff. Thanks for what you've come so far, but I'm still missing this bit and this bit. And I I think one of the other things that really helped me was this thought or fear of all procrastination, and being on the spot to I've got to decide now, and it's very um, cognitively challenging to make decisions. So giving a time frame of okay, I need to think about that. I'm going to get back to you in 24 hours. Is that okay? Uh, And equally, that can give you some space if it's a feedback that perhaps you didn't expect or you need to do your you know, ten breaths through your nose yep. to, to have some composure of those things is is rather than just go away and not tell them. I need some time, and then specify what that time is. Uh, then it reduces a lot of anxiety around some of those things. Would it's you? Awesome. It,
1: one, the one concept we have too, like that, if you really like one of the one of the trickiest ones is if you really have purpose for work, you really like the organization, you really like the team, and you just you don't want to go. Then the, con- the other concept we have, and I've blogged about this before, and this is at the end of the decision tree, is that you take our three-story feedback method, right? So what is your story, and you you lay that out, and you deliver it as your future exit interview. So later on, I'm going to leave the organization if we can't fix these things. That's where we're headed. The future story is right now I'm on, I'm in the departure lounge, right? My flight hasn't boarded yet, but I'm I'm looking at travel options. And so what I would like to give you as my leader. I'd like to give you the opportunity to fix some things. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna have my exit interview that I would have in three or four months with you right now. And if you can change it and we can come up with a better future story that has me staying here because I would really like to, then perfect. And I, and I I had an example recently where there was something structural in an organization that was inhibiting culture. I don't believe you can create, I don't believe that you can use org dev and structure to create a great culture, you can use it to kill culture in four seconds but it takes structure with collective leadership to be able to have a truly adaptable high performance enterprise but in this particular case it was like i can't stay here unless we fix this structural element and so it was flipping it back and this one's still a work in progress we'll see you know they essentially gave their you know their their notice that current course and speed this is not where i want things to be headed but they gave employer the opportunity to fix the structural issue that was really inhibiting their ability to perform. And so again, we'll, we'll have to stay tuned to see what goes there, but, but it did at least land and they were like, okay, we do want to try and fix this because yes, we would like you to stay.
0: I I love that. And it resonates a lot with a concept we use as part of strategic coaches, a four by four, and you have four performances, four results, four ways you can be a hero. And most Mm -hmm. things stop there. Right. These are the outcomes. These are results. This is what good looks like. We don't say this is what bad looks like. And so the fourth one is drives me crazy. So you say these are the four things. If these things show up, you know, meetings with no action or whatever it is to you, you're explicit around the things that are going to drive you crazy. And that should be two way. Yeah, I love it. That should be two way, you know, in terms of each role. Show me what worst looks like. So rather than it waiting to an undiscussed thing and then I'm on the next plane, you know, I've left the departure land or I've given you pre-warning. That pre-warning should be right at the job role spec. This is what worst result looks like. And then when we know that, we can we can uh, know it. You know, we can either go, oh, I'm going to go and tread on it. It's what kids do. Right. You know, they need to know their boundaries. I need to know where it is. Our resilience research, it, it isn't absolute, but it shows we've
1: done work on resilience. And so we have these things, leader support is like you give people clarity, you help them grow. So that is like the, the, like when you, the ultimate test of resilience is like, did you decide to leave, right? Like you're, you literally lost your resilience and you're out. Leader support seems to have more of an impact on that than teamwork and, and kind of peer support, though that also matters. But the, the straw that breaks the camel's back does seem to be leader support. the The, the key thing here is when you look at what makes for leader support and what makes for a great leader when you think about those things that would be in that box if you have a weak leader or you're not on a great team there's like a 90 percent chance that the things that will be in that box would be fixed if people live the values of the organization like if you stripped out all 35 elements and i was just left with one i would pick you know my leader lives the values of the organization because of the research we have that shows that that is actually like the foundational thing if someone lives the values like truly lives them not like you made this nice book for the coffee table at reception or they're on the website it is amazing the number of times in coaching where i'll say which values is this person that you're frustrated with not living and they're like people be like oh hang on i gotta go look up the values it's like okay so this is actually our issue right so i'm willing to bet if you reflect on things that you've seen in that box of things that drive some people crazy they're deal breakers that if everybody lived the values of the organization, wouldn't be a problem. They wouldn't surface.
0: Yeah. I think it's the, the beauty I've seen is where the values then get put into some explicit behaviors. Yes. And so I can see how that value shows up and how it doesn't show up, how it's in its light side and in the shadow side. And that's, That's you know, the simple stuff of it. So it if we, I can't believe how quickly time's gone, Jeff. But I want to, <laughs> I want to ask you a question, and I think it's going to be interesting your response, especially given what you shared about your own drivers and career path. Of hey, I want to be scared by forty percent. I want to not have the capability yet, and I dive into to those experiences. And my my question is, when was the last time you did something for the first time, and what was it?
1: Oh, something for the first time. Um, hmm, that's a really good question. I one of the things I can think of, it wasn't maybe for the first time, but it was the first time in like 30 years was, uh, I, I, during COVID we joined a tennis club. And so one of the most nerve wracking things I think I've done was actually like enter a tennis tournament for the first time since like literally the early nineties, like literally 30 years. And, uh, so it wasn't like the first time I had done it, but what I didn't expect was when I got out of the court for the first match, I was so freaking nervous. And it was like, I, I kind of had this reflection, of like I feel like this is what I do with people when I coach all the time. It's like, I'm getting them to try new stuff. So it was just neat to like get put in that space. And like the first few games, like I could hardly even play. And then you sort of, you know, you do your breathing and I was, using, you know, some of those things and you kind of settle in and then it's like, okay, cool. We're just back to tennis. But like, that was when we're all, it did feel like the first time um and i think the other one that i'm I, I don't know if i'm as nervous about but i i i recently had um so i'll be a little vulnerable here i recently had um one of my clients uh decide to go back to a coach they used to work with so they were working with a coach they came to me and they're going to go back and so part of it is the coach's style but part of it was there was like one or two things that i could do better and so one of those things is actually holding um holding my clients more accountable and i was like that's a fine balance, right? Because you're you're on one hand, it's like, you've got this, like, it's my client. So you want them to keep paying and whatever. But on the other hand, and I have had cases where I've had to be pretty direct with clients. And like, yeah, you there have been times where that's led to me, like, losing the contract, right? So, but it's like, you have to go back to, you have to step into that space. And so yeah, I probably need to do more of that in the, in the future. So there's there's a moment coming where, yeah, something will come up where I haven't held someone accountable the way I need to. And I'm going to have to step into that space knowing that, yeah, sometimes in the past when I've done that and I've held people accountable, you lose the work. So it's like, that's, you talk about a contradiction, yeah. right? My clients hire me to essentially do something that could get me fired.
0: <laughs> it's like, I guess it's in the asking the permission. Do you give me permission yeah. to hold you accountable and yeah. at what level? I have five levels of holding you accountable. Level one is this. I tap you a couple of times. Level five is I come around your house and I give you a slap. You know, what what is the levels of accountability that you're looking for that can help uh, me hold you to account? And I guess I like that
1: phrasing. Actually, that's that's great. And I think, you know, the tone and everything's really important. But I I do think actually that's really I love the I love the way you said that. And That's quite helpful. Um, that when now when I have this moment where I'm uncomfortable have to do this, I think that's a great way to use use our own stuff, like use a coach yeah. approach, use our accountability approach and just say permission to hold you accountable, <laughs> which that alone might be enough to say. Maybe, maybe. Yeah.
0: And I, I loved sharing and learning about your story of the first time, going back to something you haven't done for a long time and that sense and energy of nervousness of anxiety, and then just going through the motions, it's, it's never, as, never as bad as we build it up to be. And I think yeah. as we go through our careers, as we go through our lives, where we're doing many things maybe for the first time, and certainly will be in our ever-changing VUCA world, is to know and sit in that space of nervousness, of anxiety, of thought, but to go and embrace it. And so often, the actual act is less than the thought. <laughs> yeah. And I, th- and I think it comes back to that, you know, right
1: back to the beginning of this conversation. It's like when I, at one point I got a, an award for, you know, it seems so young now, it was like top 40 under 40. Like that feels like ages ago. Cause it is, but the, the, someone asked me a really cool question. They said, what is it that helped you get to the point where you got this award, you know, where you have achieved a lot before you're 40. And I think it was this, you know, yeah, this constant, desire to go take jobs where I really didn't have a clue what I was doing, but I was willing to learn and I was open and I was willing to, to like be in that space. And it's kind of like the the tennis example. I think what made me the most nervous was like, you know, just being on the court and like not really thinking about the fact that wow, like I'm on court one and like there's all these people and probably none of them were actually watching me because there's much better matches that were next to us. And but like in my mind, like they were all watching me, which which is but this is this is the human condition, right? And so yeah, putting yourself into those situations and having to work through them, like that, is the work, and that could be something in your coaching, it could be something in someone's personal life, you know, if someone's a musician or whatever. Like, there's so many opportunities for that, and like my my little guy, I um, have a ten year old who plays baseball, and so the other night he was he was playing and he's doing well and he got one out and then he struck someone out and then he had like walk three batters, and then someone got a hit and he's like, okay, I got to get one more out, and I. So it gets, you know, he's got two strikes and it gets up to three balls. And the next one, he either strikes his kid out or they get him out or he walks and there's another run. And he struck him out. But I could see when he's on the mound that he did what I say to him. That's exactly what he did. He went. And then he struck him out. But like, what an awesome theater. Like that's got nothing to do with sports. That's what we need people to do is be comfortable putting yourself in a position where you're uncomfortable. And by definition, you be more resilient, be more adaptable be more vulnerable, like all these things. They're all different words for essentially the same thing, which is just you just got to work through it.
0: We have and it it made me smile because the final piece in my book, the chapter is talking about the monkey king and when mm. we're facing certain death, can we still be playful? And it comes into that same situation when we're facing what we see and perceive at that moment as an incredibly important piece uh, with might not be life and death, but we're our body's reacting in that way, can we still smile? Can we still That's be it. playful? Can we still breathe?
1: <laughs> Just <laughs> take a breath, right?
0: Have our problems, Jeff, if people want to uh, get in touch with you, what is the best way? We've got lots of assets that you were mentioning. We'll try and get those and link them up into the podcast for people. But how do they get in touch with you, Jeff?
1: So you shoot me an email. It's jeff. K-E-F-F at supportinglines.com. Uh, and then, yeah, all of our stuff. we get stuff online. If you want to check out our materials, cloud.supportinglines.com. We've got a whole course that goes through like all of our research and everything. It's a, you got to register for it, but it's free. And in there, there's a leader toolkit that's got some of the stuff we talked about. So the one-on-one template, take it, go try it. Like there's more training and stuff they can do about it to really help with the nuances of it. But I'm willing to bet that if people just took that, tried it three times, kept tactics out as one example, off they go. And yeah, if you got, if you want any, If you want a little more help with any of that, yeah, Jeff at supportinglines.com. I'd I'd love to continue the conversation with anyone that's
0: listening. Fantastic. Jeff, it's been really eye-opening. I've learned loads. And that's part of my mission on my podcast is to interview amazing, interesting people that I can learn from. I've learned, as I say, a lot. And by nature, I hope some who've listened to this episode will do the same. Look forward to a number of conversations in the future with you, Jeff. Thank you.
1: No, I look forward to it. I think the, the, the I appreciate the opportunity to be on the podcast and I appreciate you just reaching out. Um, I've learned a lot as well. And I think, yeah, based on just some of the things you talked about and in and, and your framework and things, uh, I, I think we'll have many more conversations and I look forward to them. So thanks again.
0: Do you have the level of adaptability to survive and thrive the rapid changes ahead? Has your resilience got more comeback than a yo-yo? Do you have the ability to unlearn in order to reskill, upskill and break through? Find out today and uncover your adaptability profile and score, your AQ. Visit aqai.io to gain your personalised report across 15 scientifically validated dimensions of adaptability. For a limited time enter code PODCAST65 for a complimentary AQME assessment. AQ AI, transforming the way people, teams and organizations navigate change. Thank you for listening to this episode of Decoding AQ. Please make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast directory and we'd love to hear your feedback. Please do leave a review and be sure to tune in next time for more insights from our amazing guests.